And uh, we continue our study of Peter's second letter. If you have a Bible and you'd like to turn there with me, we're going to 2 Peter chapter 1 again. And don't be afraid, we're going to be able to do more than one word today. I know we haven't done it in a long time. We've been going very slowly. We're going to move just a little faster and do verses 8 and 9. As we continue the fruits of growing godliness, actually we can only begin to do that today. But uh, I would like to read to you once again, starting from the beginning of the letter down to verse 11, to take it in context. Here we have 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he is cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray together. Our Father, we pray that once again this word would cause us to abound, to be even more diligent, to never stumble, to rejoice all the more in the great and precious promises we have received. We pray that uh, these things, which in so many ways remain afar off for us, as yet unseen, would be brought near to be greater and more wonderful than the things of earth as they truly are. We pray that Christ would shine in our hearts through his love. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. One of the things you commonly see on car bumpers these days is fish. You know what I'm speaking of. The simple fish that was the ancient symbol of the Christian faith because the Greek word for fish which sometimes is spelled out on those little bumper stickers, ichthus, uh, that uh, word, the ancient Greek word for fish was made an acrostic that uh, reminded them who Jesus was. Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior, ichthus. Before the cross became the favorite Christian symbol, the fish was commonly being used throughout the ancient world. But did you know that earlier yet, there was another symbol that was more common 
than the fish, at least as far as we know from archaeology. For instance, deep in the catacombs, the subterranean graveyards where those early Christians were buried, the most prevalent image used by the faithful was the image of, anyone know? The anchor. The anchor. For example, in the ancient cemetery of Priscilla, just north of Rome, when there was an image appearing on a grave, 8% of the time it was a fish. But 70% of the time it was an anchor. The anchor reminded Christians that their hope was secure in something that transcended this world. It pointed them away from themselves to someone who was strong and stable in whom they could confidently put their trust. In the letter to the Hebrews, for, for example, we read of that great hope that we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, as it were, the, the anchor of our souls. And so we have this immovable hope because it is anchored and secured in Jesus Christ, the anchor of our souls. So the big question as we begin is, are you anchored in Christ? You can go to church each week. You can hear the same gospel here week by week. But if you are not anchored in the one who is sure and steadfast, well, you are bound to drift because only Christ is able to hold you secure to the end. We cannot help but notice that this world is more and more adrift, to keep on this anchor metaphor. We're adrift. We're emotionally adrift. Um, people have fears and anxieties and loneliness and a lack of committed relationship. Many people have written on this. We are certainly morally adrift. We don't teach virtue, and people don't know why something is right or wrong besides a chanted and repeated slogan. We are spiritually adrift. People are tossed to and fro by every religious idea, and the result is that they remain lukewarm, if not actually double-minded. Such a climate has surely affected us all. As one Christian man wrote, in our generation, we have increasingly suffered from spiritual lethargy and powerlessness. There is a high percentage of weak and lukewarm Christians in Western churches who evidence little interest in growing in grace and knowledge. The church may be bustling with activity and at the same time be infiltrated and permeated with the world's thinking and doing. It is sometimes the case that bright forms of worship camouflage a dead spiritual condition, end quote. In a world adrift, it is all the more urgent for us to have an anchor of the soul. Peter writes this letter out of exactly just such a concern, for the world in his day was, if anything, more worldly than it was and it is in ours. And that the world had invaded the church in Asia, as we read in chapter 2. They had false teaching flooding in and the false living that inevitably 
accompanies it. Peter's solution, as we've studied, is to have the whole church grow together in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, the theme of this letter. We have studied just seven specific areas where we need to grow as Christians that would take us from faith to love. And we are never safer than when we're getting stronger. Where is your strength? Do you have that strong anchor in Jesus? Growth is not the goal. Christ is the goal. But being rooted and grounded in him is the point. We have been creeping along slowly for several weeks, considering each of these areas of growth. And today we're going to come back to a the larger picture and see why we've been looking at all these things so carefully, where we've come from, but also where we're going and why. The theme is a fruitful Christian life, but to be fruitful, we must start where Peter did. And so my first point to you is a short point of review, power and promises, power and promises. Here's where we must start, power and promises. Uh, This is what Jesus described when he said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Obviously, branches unattached to the vine can produce nothing. And so Peter started this letter where we must start to be fruitful people. Verse 3, his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. Have you ever thought about what divine power can do? Let's see. Divine power can call a universe out of nothing. Divine power can accomplish all of God's great purposes in this vast world. Divine power can heal the sick. Divine power can raise the dead. And did you know that God has invested his divine power in your spiritual growth in Christ? So that, as Paul puts it in the letter to the Ephesians, the very power that raised Jesus from the dead is now at work in you. Or Paul says elsewhere, he said it, you know it. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What God calls you to do He empowers you to achieve. And there's something else that we need besides the power. We need the promises, which is the next verse, verse 4, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. I love that phrase. Exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. Power and promises. That's what we need. Now, to illustrate it to you, since... I think we have many more people here in construction than we do in agriculture, and we're going to be using agriculture the rest of the day. Let's go to construction just for a moment. If you're starting some building project and you need to start by well, ordering materials and renting equipment and you want to make payroll every week, someone better be writing the checks. Now, checks are simply promises. Checks are just promises. You really can't do anything with a check until you go to the bank to cash it. The check has the person's name on it. Good enough. It it has an amount. That's good. But it won't do you any good unless you go cash the check. The money is in the bank. That, if you like, is the power. The money in the bank is the power. 
the checks that are written are the promises. But a promise is only as good, of course, as the one who makes the promise. I mean, you can make a promise, but if you have no power to back it up, it's no good to anyone. I mean, I could write you a personal check today for $1 million, and you might be very happy until you go to the bank, and then your pro problems will start, because they will laugh at you. They, they'll say, nice try. This guy doesn't have near the amount of money for you to cash that check. I can make you a promise, but I have no power behind it. God is the one who has the power with the promise. God has promised not only an escape from the corruption that is in the world through lust, but participating in the divine nature, a whole new life and future, an entrance into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and so many other great and precious promises which come to you like a check. But, as Spurgeon says at the beginning of his devotional faith checkbook, what are you going to do with these checks from God, these promissory notes? You have to receive it and endorse it and present it for payment in prayer that you might have the power that you need. You have to apply such promises in order to get power for your life. That's how power and promise work together. So if you present your promise by prayer to get the power you need, you will have all that you need for the second point today as we come now, especially to verses 8 and 9, part of our study of uh, growing in godliness. We just, uh, so growing in godliness, my second point. We've just finished these seven particular qualities or virtues to add to our faith. Now, having listed them out, Peter goes on to describe some wonderful benefits of growing in godliness. These include fruitfulness, assurance, perseverance, and eternal blessing. We are to gain from this growth in godliness the satisfaction of knowing that our lives are going to be meaningful in light of eternity. We're going to enjoy the assurance of knowing that God has called and chosen us as his own children. We will not be led astray from the truth as it is in Jesus. And when we step into eternity, he says there will be a grand welcome. These are some great things that come from growth in godliness. Today, I'm afraid to say I can only take up the first thing, fruitfulness. Next time, we'll consider assurance, and that may take a little bit longer than one week, but fruitfulness from verses 8 and 9. Peter writes, for if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ rec rescues our lives from being barren and unfruitful. The first word that I have translated here as barren, B-A-R-R-E-N, is the same word that's usually translated in my New King James idle, or uh, once even lazy. <laughs> it means uh, doing nothing, producing nothing, 
Or, you know, of course, in a the case of a tree, it's not the tree's fault, barren. It can also, by the way, be translated useless or indifferent or even without thought. I think there's something sadly contemporary about that word. Many people are indifferent and don't give a thought about what their lives are coming to. Back to the idea of being adrift. A lot of people have written about how boys are adrift, the culture's adrift. Just being adrift, um, indifferent, without thought. Um, in the letter of James, this is the word that's uh, translated worthless, uh, a, a waste of life. Don't waste your life. Filling your life, uh, adding to your faith virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love will keep you from being a useless person, thoughtless, worthless, indifferent. It's a little pointed, but that is the meaning. The second word here is always translated unfruitful in my New King James in the sense of being unproductive. In the parable of the sower, for instance, that word is used. Jesus speaks about the various groups of people that are unfruitful. And yet there's only one that receives the blessing. Receiving the word, it bears fruit some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. Well, the Bible uses the metaphor of fruit, you'll know, to describe good and full lives. This fall, we've had just ton, tons of fresh fruit, thanks to uh, some special apple orchard uh, 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 purchases, and uh, I'm just delighted to have it. Uh, such a good, a good metaphor, sweet, filling, enriching Throughout the Old Testament, again and again, we get this. Israel is described as God's vineyard, God's tree, God's planting. Sometimes it bears great fruit, sometimes the opposite. As we've already seen today, the Christian life is to be a fruit-bearing life. Jesus says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you may ask the Father in my name, he may give you. And you know, Jesus says, the Lord has called you. He has gifted you. Yes, you. Commissioned you to do this great thing, to go and to bring forth fruit, the good fruit that is through the various ideas of growth Peter is listed. Uh, like what? Like, like to, have, to have a faith that cannot be hidden, to stand out as a person of virtue, to have knowledge at hand to answer life's great questions, to have self-control not to blow up or fall apart, not to fall into temptation. Faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, all these things are very fruitful. Good fruit that comes out in many ways in our dispositions and desires, our attitudes and affections, and certainly our actions. As we learn to love others with the love of Christ, uh, while the sins that we formerly loved become loathsome to us. We're given opportunity to do good to everyone and walk in the good works that God has prepared beforehand for us to do. We exercise spiritual gifts to build up the body of Christ and forgive for his sake more easily. We tell others the good news of salvation and make disciples. We are thankful and we praise God and we do all things for his glory, confessing our sins and praying for him to fulfill his work and Strive to know him better and do the things that please him. And uh, these in various verses are called fruit. D do 
do, do you help those around you? Do you have a positive impact on the lives of people there? Is your life sweet to the taste? Does it inspire others to live for Christ? It's a fruitful life. And, and, and Peter reminds us, don't forget, this is why he's cleansed you from your past sins and given you this whole new future and divine power. Or, or Paul explained it this way in his letter to the Romans. My brethren, you've become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you may be married to another who is raised from the dead that you should bear fruit to God. So, Peter says, if these things are yours and abound. That's how he begins verse 8. If these things are yours. Are these things yours? And abounding. Because that's the way to have a fruitful, delightful, satisfying, productive life. But if not, Peter warns us in our third point today, the problem, what the problem may be anyway, short-sightedness. Short-sightedness, my third point. Or we could say short-sighted sinfulness, to have three S's together. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. You might have noticed in this verse, Peter has shifted, for verse 9 only, from you to he, so as not to accuse the majority of his readers. He doesn't say, you lack these things. He says, he who lacks these things is short-sighted to blindness and so forth. But if the word of warning applies to some, they need to take heed. Blind and short-sighted are here used together in the sense of being so short-sighted that you can't see anything. Some of you may be like that, with the thick glasses and so forth. You can't see anything without them. The idea is that some people, though, are so short-sighted, uh, idea, so focused on this world, so focused on the present, that they are not growing in these great fruitful qualities that he's listed. Such a person is blind in two directions, I suppose. He can't look to the future and see the great purposes of life and the promises of God. And he can't look to the past to see that the forgiveness and new birth that at first maybe made him so excited was for a purpose, a purpose now practically forgotten. The things of the present life aren't great, but they are very close. I meant to, meant to have a coin so I could give you my favorite illustration of this. Anybody got any change that you might not get back at the end of the service? Oh, I see something coming out here. Jingle, jingle, jingle. Oh, dear. All right. There we go. What's this? All right. It'll do. They, they can't see very well. They're short-sighted here. So anyway, I'm just going to pretend this is a coin here. This doesn't matter. Oh, look at that. All right, here. Okay, here we go. Thank you. So we have here a, a, a dime. This is not a magic trick. Uh, but this dime has the power to block out the sun. Now, this dime is not very great or glorious. Nothing compared to the, the size of the sun, which doesn't need to be hidden today anyway. But anyway, all right. The point is, I can make this dime block out the sun. How can I do that? I just need to hold it very, very close. And the things of this life, thank you, are not great, but as we put them before our face, 
as we look on these and these alone, we can block out the great, glorious, wonderful things. This is the danger of short-sightedness. To be short-sighted to the point of blindness. Bertrand Russell, you might know one of the most read atheists of the 20th century, said, well, unless you assume a God, the question of life's purpose is meaningless. Unless you assume there's a God, the question of life's purpose is meaningless. And he's being proved right every day. As people who have set this meaningless life before them, full of everything else except for the best things that will last for life and eternity, they are left with a wasted life, with nothing. I mean, nobody plans it this way. Nobody sets out to live a useless, unfruitful life, but short-sightedness, setting these things before you to block out the great things of God, is the result. I say nobody sets out to say, I'm going to waste my life. Nobody would write out a plan for a wasted life. Plan for a wasted life. I think I will devote 13 hours per day every day to media. Even though you know that's the national average. You think, surely not. Uh, There is some overlapping use of media and so forth. But according to a major study out this summer, Insider Intelligence reporting, U.S. adults will spend 13 hours and 11 minutes per day with media in 2022, all-time high. Now, nobody would make such a plan for their lives. Nobody would say, I plan to live so selfishly with such disregard for others that I will have no deep and productive relationships. No one plans to be barren and unfruitful. And yet people end up that way because they are short-sighted. They are setting before themselves things which make them forget that Christ has set them free. For a reason. Peter is stating his point strongly negatively here as a warning to call our attention to the fact that if you're not growing in godliness, you're being short-sighted. You've lost sight of the great things. You are not asking, how can I be fruitful and useful and productive in my Christian life? How can I use what God has entrusted to me? So that one day I'm going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Take charge of ten cities. We don't want to be just busy. We want to be fruitful, useful. So Peter warns us, the consequence of not growing is dire. To be blind, that is, spiritually ignorant and unfeeling, unsensing, forgetting, forgetting who I am in Christ, not pursuing what belongs to me. In Christ. And you know, if I'm not getting my identity from God, I'm still getting it. I'm getting it from other people. If I'm not getting it vertically, I'm getting my identity horizontally. I'm being told who to be. I'm going to obey it one way or the other. And if you don't know who you are, then you will never be whom you're supposed to be. And you will never do what you are called to do. So, He says, warning, warning, don't forget what Christ has done in calling you and cleansing you. Because you have a purpose, a fruitful, faithful, delightful purpose in life. Don't forget. Don't be short-sighted. Don't get distracted. We are far too ready to settle for a short, 
term happiness. One of the greatest temptations we face in the world today. Short term happiness. You see it everywhere, and I need to spend a few minutes hammering this home. We watch on television scenes, misery, and need in the larger world outside. Yet we don't wish to be inconvenienced by it ourselves. It's just a picture of the modern problem. We can't bring ourselves to turn it off, but we can't bring ourselves to bother with it to do anything about it. Can you see that there's something wrong? We are connected, and yet we are alone. Because we don't welcome people in our homes or lives, and we don't go out to meet them. We, we dismiss the needs of future generations without a thought, so that with all these advantages, do you know what's taking over our lives? Nothing. Nothing. C.S. Lewis has the devil, screw tape, explained to his junior devil, Wormwood, that the man that he is after can be very effectively drawn away from God by nothing. He writes, nothing is very strong. Strong enough to steal away a man's best years. Not in sweet sins, but in a dreary flickering of the mind over it knows not what and it knows not why. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Nothing is very dangerous. Young people, this is especially facing you more than previous generations. Here is Cornelius Plantiga describing the temptation that he sees especially facing the students where he is president at a college, as he writes, making a career of nothing, wandering through malls, killing time, making small talk video games, watching television programs until we know their characters better than our own children, robbing the community of our gifts and energies and shapes life into a yawn at the God and Savior of the world. The person who will not bestir herself. The person who hands herself over to nothing says to God, you have made nothing of interest and redeemed no one of consequence, including me. A tragedy that I'm hammering home because it's a big, big problem. Nothing, nothing is a big problem. One more writes. The main problem with TV is not how much smut is available, though that is a problem. The greater problem is banality, the capacity of the mind to think worthy thoughts withers. The capacity of the heart to feel deep emotions 
shrivels. I groan over the petty pursuits that waste so many lives and so much of mine. Oh, that young and old would turn off the television, take a long walk, and dream about feats of courage. When they see our sacrificial love, radiant with joy, will they not say, Christ is great? Beware. Unproductive. Unfruitful. Barren lives from short-sightedness, forgetting what we are cleansed and called for. To conclude, in the, in the days of old sailing ships, one of the most feared dangers on the open sea was not piracy or mighty storms. It was being adrift, or becalmed, as they often called it, hundreds of miles away from the land. The word becalmed, becalmed, that sounds kind of peaceful, actually, but it was a terrifying word to mariners on wind-powered boats, as from time to time such a boat might be seen coming to the shore, just drifting, all hands on board, slowly had starved to death or died of thirst, without wind, without sail, simply drifting. With no movement of air, a ship that is literally adrift floats aimlessly for days or weeks on end, and the sailors agonizingly perish. And in a similar way for modern Christians, perhaps today's most dangerous spiritual energy is not some sudden temptation or assault of some spiritual enemy or some storm of life. It's simply drifting, drifting. We are not only drifting to the degree we are, uh, that we are not productive and growing and advancing, or I should say it this way, we are drifting to the degree we're we are not productive and growing and advancing. Get it? To the degree that we are not growing and advancing, we're drifting. Peter wants us to get going. Jim Elliott, a missionary who died young a few years ago, wrote in his journal, I seek not a long life, but a full one, like you, Lord Jesus. And that was what God granted that young man, not a long life, but a full one. I certainly have wasted a great, great deal of time in my life. And I can tell you for certain that if you aim at nothing, you hit it every time. Far too often, my heart is simply not living in keen awareness of the great things of life and eternity. It's a very short-sighted life, even to blindness, and therefore unproductive, unfruitful, barren. Meanwhile, I read in the Bible how Christianity is everywhere described in God's Word as a great love, as a great passion, as a great concentration of heart and mind and life, and that God deserves nothing less for us. And indeed, we wish to give him nothing less. But you see, that requires attention and courage and determination and remembering that matters of eternal consequence and importance rest on the decisions that we are making and the deeds that we are performing or not performing. Uh, the story is told of 
President Lincoln attending a church service with a friend, and as they left, the friend asked the president what he thought of the sermon. He said it was carefully prepared and well-delivered. So you thought it was a great message, the friend asked. He answered, no, I, I thought it failed. Well, why? Because, he said, it did not ask anything great. God is asking us something great indeed. Great indeed. Painting the Christian life in this letter and elsewhere in the boldest strokes, in the brightest colors, participating in the divine nature, exceeding great and precious promises. His divine power for life and godliness. There is no reason to be bored if you are a Christian. Okay? There's just no reason to be bored. And yet you and I are constantly beset by this temptation to make so much less of our lives, to see them in such fainter strokes and paler colors, that if the Bible speaks of our life as a great warfare, that day after day we live ignorant of the being on a battles, battlefield strewn with carnage of a spiritual fight that certainly has left its casualties lying all around us. Or if the, if the Bible speaks of our life as a pilgrimage, we meander every day unconscious that we are progressing anywhere or even that the journey we're on is, in, is beset by difficulties and dangers on every side. I mean, it takes no courage, moral or otherwise, to follow the crowd. No, not for us, brothers or sisters. This is why we need to grow. He's giving us the first of many important reasons. He stated it negatively as a warning in order that we might positively advance. We have few enough years to live for Christ in this world. We must not delay to make the very most of this magnificent life for which we have been cleansed and called and empowered to live to the glory of God, to the honor of Christ, and to the blessing of many, the eternal blessing of many. Let us wake up, open the blind eyes, be alive, and devote ourselves to God and to committing ourselves to a fruitful life of growing godliness. Amen. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, such uh, simple things have been set before us, and yet we confess such wonderful things. We also confess, Father, that uh, so little of our own conscious life has been occupied by such wonderful words. How much we need a revolution of life and thought set before us again and again, day after day. We could easily have the same message every day for a year, and profit by it, Father, for we confess we much need your word. We pray that again, by that divine power, by the Holy Spirit given to us, that we should produce fruit for eternal life in our lives and in the lives of others, that we should thank you on that last day that you have not left us to drift, but have called us upward and onward. Excelsior, O oh Lord, grant fruitfulness 